I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we do return to the 15th chapter today as we're dealing with the greatest text that we have in the Bible on the subject of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is one of the chief doctrines, if not the chief doctrine that we find in the New Testament. All other religions have human founders, and without exception, all the founders of those religions are dead. But not so with the founder of Christianity. Our founder is alive, and the reason that we're here on Sunday morning, the reason I'm preaching this sermon to you today, is because after three days in a cold, dark tomb, Jesus came back to life. That has huge implications upon our hope for eternal life. Those implications are so serious that the Bible teaches that if Christ did not arise from the dead, then neither will we arise from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's polemic on the subject of the resurrection. There were many people in the city of Corinth who didn't understand this. They thought that perhaps the resurrection was a spiritual resurrection only. Perhaps even the resurrection had already passed. And then there were others who did believe in a physical resurrection of the body, but they didn't understand what kind of body it would be when that body comes out of the grave. Now, next week, we're going to talk about that, the kind of body that we'll have when we arise from the grave. But today's section of Paul's argument has to do with living in light of the resurrection. Because Jesus did arise from the grave, there are not only implications for our eternal life, but it also has something to say about our life right here and now, how we're to live in light of the resurrection. Now, remember, the apostle Paul had a sure unwavering foundational belief in the resurrection of Christ. He could not be moved from this because he was a witness that Christ had risen from the dead. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. We're covering verses 29 through 34 in this 15th chapter. And here Paul is still arguing. He's still building his case about the resurrection. And he's coming to the final push that he'll make in the end of the chapter where he tells us about the glorious change that will take place when Jesus comes back. But right now, Paul wants to talk about life. How does the truth of the resurrection cause us to approach our lives here and now? This is what we're going to read about today. Verse number 29 begins with the word else. Else. That refers back to what he said before. And we're going to learn in just a minute here that it has reference to why do Christians do what we do? Why do we live like we live? Why do we suffer persecution? And many Christians have if there is, in fact, no resurrection. Look what he says in verse number 29. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that would be our philosophy. If if there is no life hereafter, let's just live it up right now. Verse 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Verse number 34 tells us how we should live. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we ask you, Lord, that you would help in the message this morning. Help us to understand it. Help us to know better what you'd have us to do because of the resurrection of Christ. Speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I told you that much of the subject matter that we have in 1 Corinthians is very controversial. What do we do about church discipline? We talked about that. That was a controversial subject. What about speaking in tongues? And, and uh, what about can women speak in the church? And those are very controversial subjects. Although really I don't think there should be a lot of controversy because we can just take what the apostle very plainly says and we can apply those scriptures. But in verse number 29 of this chapter, we come to another verse that is very controversial. And I think it's a little bit different than the others because we can resolve some of these other conflicts by by doing some cross-checking, by doing some references and looking up some other things. And we can understand a little bit better what Paul means when he talks about those those controversies. But in this particular one, in verse number 29, there are many people who believe that the key to understanding verse 29 is actually locked away in time. We'll never be able to understand really what Paul means with verse number 29. As great a commentator as John MacArthur is, he said this. He said, as to what this verse does mean, we can only guess since history has locked it away in obscurity. And if you read what many commentators have to say about the verse, there are various uh, things that they say. But I think that we can come to an informed conclusion about what verse number 29 means even though there are many people who say that we really can't know what it means. And as MacArthur says, he says, it's easier to find out what it does not mean than rather what it does mean. But there's one thing that I know for sure. Somehow, verse number 29 fits into Paul's argument about the resurrection. Somehow it fits in with that. Now let's read that verse again. Verse 29, he says, Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Well, the key to the verse is obviously baptism. Somehow, baptism is connected with this argument about the resurrection. So the first thing that we have to do today, we need to look into the issue of baptism. So point number one in the message this morning is the message in baptism. What is it that we know about baptism? Well, nowhere else in in this particular chapter is baptism mentioned, but what we know about baptism will help us to understand what Paul means in this verse. The big controversy centers on this question, what does Paul mean when he says, baptism for the dead? Does that mean that it's possible for someone to be baptized for another person? Is it possible to baptize another person for somebody who's dead, and somehow that counts in eternity? That's the question. I mean, can people go into heaven because someone was baptized for them? Well, if that's what the verse means, then it's the only place in the Bible where we find such an idea. That runs contrary. It's against everything that we read in the Scriptures about salvation, about baptism. But there are some people who actually do believe that is what Paul means. He means that somebody died as a believer or did not die as a believer, rather. They were not a Christian, uh, but they can get somebody, or somebody could go into the waters of baptism for them, and somehow that will take care of their salvation, and they'll be able to go to heaven. Well, as we talk about baptism today, here's what we want to discuss first. Baptism for the dead is a cultic practice. 
The idea that there is such a thing as a proxy baptism being for either the living or the dead is not the teaching of the Bible. Now, there is one major group today, a very fast-growing group, that's becoming widely recognized as a Christian denomination, and they actually do believe and they do practice baptism for the dead. That's the Mormons. About two or three blocks down the street from our church, there's a group down there that says it is possible for someone who has died without faith, without ever having trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, without ever even hearing the gospel of Christ, it is possible to baptize a living person for that dead person, and then the dead person will be able to enter into the everlasting bliss of the eternal life, whatever the Mormons believe that to be. In other words, dead people can be saved through the act of baptism, even though they've already left this life. Now, because of that, the Mormons have become very interested in genealogy. They want to find out who their ancestors are. And the reason they do that is because they want their ancestors to go into heaven. And so they want to be baptized for them. So they find out the names of their ancestors and they go get baptized for them. A few years ago, the Mormons expanded that to all people, and so they started baptizing for dead people who never even heard of Mormons, had no idea about it at all, and yet the Mormons are using their names to be baptized. And special temples all across the world, uh, places where non-Mormons would never be able to enter, they are busily doing this 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There are people that are going down into these huge tanks for baptism, and they pronounce the name of some person that has died, and then they get baptized, and they come back up out of the water, and they say, well, that dead person is allowed now to go into heaven. And so thousands upon thousands, even to the millions, there are people that are being baptized by proxy for dead people. Well, that was found out some time ago, and it was. It it made uh, lots of people upset because there were people that have no connections with the Mormon church at all, and they don't want their names of, of their ancestors being used, their fathers, their mothers, their brothers or sisters or grandfathers, whatever. They don't want their names being used in those Mormon ceremonies. Folks, that is a cultic practice. Mormons are not Christians. Now, as desperately as they try to fit into the mainstream of Orthodox Christianity, they are a cult. They do not believe in the doctrines of the Bible. You see, they accept another authority. They accept the Book of Mormon, which really is the ravings of a lunatic. They don't believe that Jesus is God, a very God. They do not believe that he is eternal. They don't believe that he's the Alpha and Omega. They do not believe he's the beginning and the end. They do not believe he's actually the God, a very God. And so, certainly, Paul does not mean this. He's not saying that it's possible to baptize for dead people because baptism for the dead is a cultic practice. Well, here's what we do know about baptism. Believer's baptism is a Christian practice. Baptism is only for believers, which means that it's only for people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. In order to be baptized, you already have to be a believer in Jesus. You already have to be saved before you can ever step one foot into that water. Baptism never saved anybody living, much less could it ever save somebody who is dead. So why do we baptize? Well, I've already inferred the first reason. Number one, baptism is a testimony about salvation. 
Baptism is your, is your public testimony that you've received Christ as your personal Savior. That's one of the very first things that you're commanded to do after you receive Christ as Savior. When Jesus talked about this, he told the disciples, you go out and you witness the message of the gospel, you tell them the truth about how they can be saved, and when they're saved, then you baptize them. The Apostle Peter, when he preached that great sermon on Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved, and they'd ask a question, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Now, why were those people baptized? They were baptized because they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed the truth of that gospel, and that's what saved them. Now, look in your Bible there at 1 Corinthians 15 and go back to verse number 1. We preached on this a few weeks ago. Paul starts out verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And in verses 3 and 4, he tells us what the gospel is. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. Jesus died... He was buried and he rose again. So when you go into the water, you're saying, I'm coming here to this water because I believe that Jesus died to save me from my sins. When you go into the water, you're saying, I believe that Jesus was buried. He actually went into a tomb. And then when you come up out of the water, you're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. And that's your identification with what Christ did. You say, I believe this. And that's a testimony of your salvation. Now, number two, baptism is a testimony about sin. I want you to turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. This is a chapter that talks about baptism, and it also talks about sin. Everybody turn there. I've got several verses to read, and this is very important for your understanding about baptism. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Skip down to verse number 6, and we'll get to the other verses in just a minute. Verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Go down to verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's something else that takes place in baptism. You are saying that you're dead to sin. You've died to your old way of life. Now, before you trusted Christ, you lived in a life of sin. Sin had its fingers and its arms gripped tightly around you. There's a song that we sing called, And Can It Be?, Charles Wesley wrote that song, and he described it this way. He says that I was chained in sin. I was chained in the darkness of sin and death. But then he says, when Christ came, and when I believed in him, that the chains fell off. And he said, I rose and I went forth and I followed Christ. And that's exactly what you say when you're baptized. You say, I was chained by sin. I lived in sin. Sin gripped me. I was dead in sin. But now I'm no longer going to live that way. And so when you go into that water, you say, I've died to sin. I've died to that old way of life. I don't want sin to grip me any longer. Verse number 12 of Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. 
That leads us to a third testimony about baptism. Baptism is a testimony about service. When you come up out of the water, you're saying, I walk, I rise to walk in this newness of life in Christ. I am not going to walk in sin any longer. Now let's go back and fill in some of those verses in Romans 6. Verse number 4, he says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If you have a pencil, you might want to underline, walk in newness of life. You have a new life in Christ. And when you come up out of that water, you say, I want to walk in this life that Christ has given. Now, double underline the word walk there, because that's actually the Bible's metaphor for Christian service. When you walk with Christ, you enter into his service. That means that you're obedient to his commands. It means that you get busy working for the service of your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Never say that you're walking in the Lord if you are not actively engaged in God's service. To walk with him is to serve him. And that's what it means to live in light of the resurrection. Now, look at Romans 6, verse number 5. He says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, there's where we have the tie-in from baptism into the resurrection. Verse number 4 says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, what is it that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15? We're talking about a resurrection. And baptism is a picture of the burial and the resurrection according to Romans chapter 6. And so that's why we have Paul mentioning this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse number 29. So what do I think he means when he says baptized for the dead? Why then are they baptized for the dead? What does that mean? Well, I know this. He doesn't mean anything close to saying that baptism is is what saves you, whether you're living or you're dead. He's not saying that because that destroys the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think what he means, he says, why do we keep baptizing people to show a burial and to show a resurrection if there is in fact no resurrection from the dead? What's the point of Christian baptism? Why would we go through that? Why do we do it? Why would we be baptized, which is an emblem, which is a symbol of the resurrection, if the resurrection is not really true? And so all the baptisms that have ever been performed, all of those that have gone under the water to be baptized, well, it was all wasted because there is no resurrection. There's a couple of things I want to point out to you about baptism before we move on to this. Things that we do not practice in baptism... Number one is we do not practice infant baptism. In Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul ties baptism into the resurrection as a symbol of the gospel. And the gospel, again, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We don't baptize babies because they don't have knowledge of the gospel. Only believers can be baptized. Only people who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ can be baptized. And we don't find any instance of any baby anywhere in the New Testament that was ever baptized. Now, what have I constantly preached from the Brian pulpit? I have preached that the Bible is our authority. Man's traditions are not our authority. And so if it's not authorized in the Bible, we won't do it. They didn't baptize infants then. And infants are incapable of believing. And only believer's baptism is Christian baptism. Now, secondly, we do not practice sprinkling as baptism. 
If baptism shows the death, resurrection of Christ, as Paul points out in verse number 6, then sprinkling could not be the way of baptizing. Now, I've got a helper here somewhere. Where's Brother Dave? Brother Dave come up here. Dave's going to help me with a little bit of an illustration here about, about baptism and about sprinkling for baptism. Brother Dave, uh, would you... Let's, see, let's come over on this side. Would you just lay down on the floor there right on your back, if you would? He made me promise I wasn't going to make him bark like a dog or anything like that. Today, we're going to bury Dave. Now, if you can't see over there, you might want to stand up because we're going to bury Dave. I want to put this sheet over Dave. It's so great to be a member of Brian Baptist Church. <laughs> All right, we're going to bury Dave. I got my dirt. This is actually potting soil. And uh, maybe you'd understand that a little bit better when you read Romans chapter 6 and, and next week as well. I'm going to bury Dave. All right, you saw it. Right here in Berean Baptist Church on the platform, people are going to go out today and say, they buried Dave Sharon right on the platform. I didn't bury Dave. When you go out to the cemetery, you are not going to see arms and legs sticking up out of graves. And that's because those people aren't buried if they do, if they do it that way. We bury people by putting them all the way into the ground. So when I sprinkle a little bit of dirt on him, and if baptism is a symbol of a, of a burial and a resurrection, I sprinkle that little bit of dirt on him. He hasn't been buried, and certainly he hasn't been baptized. Now I'm going to let Dave get up here. I think he's still alive under there. So, Dave, you can get up now. Thank you very much. Now, I, I put that sheet over him so he wouldn't get the dirt on him. But this is what we do, and this is what we... Thank you, Dave. This is what we do in baptism. We take people over there into the water, and we take them all the way under the water. We totally immerse them in the water because that's the way that you show a burial. And then when they come up out of the water, that shows the resurrection of Christ. And that's why we do it. And the proofs of immersion in the Bible are plentiful. They're bountiful that that's the way that they did it. That's why we go into the water. It's why we go under the water. It's why we come out of the water because it shows a burial and a resurrection. The proofs of this are so numerous that even Protestants who believed in infant baptism and sprinkling for baptism, Protestants like Martin Luther and John Calvin actually said that that is the proper way that they did it in the New Testament. If that's the way they do it in the New Testament, that's the way that we're going to do it. That's what shows the burial and the resurrection. So Paul connects it all together. The burial and the resurrection, baptism is emblematic of that. Now, we need to hurry on here because I want to cover these next verses. Go back to our text here. Look in verse number 15. We're back in 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 30. He says, And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? My first point is about the message of baptism. Now, secondly, the motive for believers. How are we to live in light of the resurrection? The resurrection furnishes the motive to live for Christ. Now, we said we... Walk, we rise to walk in the newness of life when we believe in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, we keep walking that way because of that blessed hope of the resurrection. So why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And what he's referring to, what Paul is talking about, is the times that he, he, everywhere that he preached, that there were people that were opposed to him. Every time that Paul went to preach, it was the possibility of being killed. There were mobs that gathered to kill him. 
In Lystra, he was stoned and he was left for dead. Christians in the Roman Empire were hated. I mean, the Romans believed that whenever a battle went wrong, whenever the economy went bad, that was the fault of Christians. And it was because Christians did not worship all the false gods that the Romans believed in. So Paul says, why do we put ourselves through this? Why do we go through all of these things if there is no resurrection? So the resurrection gives us motive, first of all, to live a life of suffering. I don't have time to go into it now or to look at this scripture. Write down the reference, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 33. And there you can read all about the different things that Paul went through because of the gospel. Right here in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 31 and 32, he says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth me if the dead rise not? Now that is the very same thing as Paul saying, this makes me mad. It makes me mad that I'm going through all of these troubles. I have all these difficulties. On a daily basis, I'm subjected even to death. And there are some of you that are ditty-bopping around here saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. How could you say such things? You know, I don't think that Paul would ever meet a Jehovah Witness that he liked because they say the dead rise not. They don't believe that there's a bodily resurrection. And yet Paul is saying right here in this scripture, I risk death every single day. Don't tell me the dead in Christ don't rise. See, the fact of the resurrection is what kept Paul going. He wasn't going to endure all this if there is no resurrection. If that's a crazy fancy of some deluded minds, he won't go through all of this. I mean, take a look at Christian history. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. See how that Christians were put into torture chambers. All kinds of things happened to Christians because of their belief in Christ. There were so many things that happened that having your head cut off by a Muslim would have seemed like a luxury compared to what Christians went through. They took Christians and they tied them to racks and pulled their arms and their legs out of the sockets. They tied them between horses and sent one this way and one that way and literally tore their bodies in two. They took Christians and they put them in sacks with poisonous snakes. They tied the the, the sack up and tossed it into a river. Nero took Christians and poured tar on them and set them on fire to light his gardens at night. Here in verse number 32, there's an indication that Paul might have even been thrown to the lions in the city of Ephesus. And there's some people who say, well, that's just a metaphor because uh, no Roman citizen as Paul was would ever have to go through that. Well, maybe it is, but at least we do know this. There were thousands upon thousands of Christians who did die that kind of death in arena, eaten by hungry lions. Hebrews provides a list of faithful people. And you know what it says about them? Hebrews chapter 11, it says, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. That means sawn in two. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And remarkably, in verse number 35 of that same chapter, it says, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, means they didn't try to get out of it, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So Paul says, I ain't going through this if there's no resurrection. Any Christian at that time could have simply said, Caesar is Lord. 
They could have renounced their faith. Just just give it up. Say Caesar is Lord and the persecution would stop. But Paul says, I won't quit preaching the gospel. Paul says, don't tell me there's no resurrection. That is the motive for my suffering. And friends, that was the motive for all those faithful people who in spite the cruelty of torture, they refused to renounce their faith. And they stood upon the promise, I will arise from the dead because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So that's motive. That's motive for living a life of suffering. And when you suffer for Christ, count yourself blessed because the Bible says that you will have a better resurrection. You have a resurrection to eternal life. And those who persecute and those who mock us as Christians, the Bible says they will experience the second death. So count yourself worthy if you ever have to suffer for Christ. Count yourself worthy because you have a resurrection to life where they have a resurrection to eternal death. Now the world is right now living that that saying that we just read a minute ago, eat and drink, tomorrow we die, this life is all there is. And they don't know that there is a life that's coming. There's life beyond the grave. And as we've said so many times before, the the Bible teaches only one of two destinies for your soul. Either it's eternity in heaven, or it's torture, it's pain and suffering in the fires of an eternal hell. The Bible calls it the second death. So the resurrection is motive to a life of suffering. But it's also motive to a life of separation. To live a life of separation. Verse number 33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. The word communications could be just as easily translated associations. Be not deceived. Evil associations corrupt good manners. So what must we have? Separation in our associations. You see, when you hang with the wrong crowd, you'll become a part of the wrong crowd. There are many... Christians, especially teenagers, that will say things like, well, I'm dating this boy or this girl because I want to win them to Jesus Christ. You better be careful. You're more likely to come like them than they are to be like you. Be separate in your associations. Make sure that person is a boy or a girl first, teenagers, before you ever date them. Some of you men and some of you ladies like to hang around with the boys at the office or the girls at the office. You better be careful with that because evil associations corrupt good manners. At some point, you may find yourself out of church. You'll find yourself out of serving the Lord. You'll find yourself in some kind of trouble. The Bible says that there's another life coming. And the scripture says that you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, did you know that there's actually an interesting thing about that? What the Bible has to say about the judgment seat of Christ in connection with the resurrection In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. What you do in the body now is going to be judged later. What you do as a Christian, that will be judged. And you know the thing about it is, this is the body the Bible teaches that's going to heaven. And we're going to talk about the body next week and and what kind of body all that's about. But this body is going to heaven. And for all eternity, this body is going to be affected in the eternal state by what we do in the temporal state. I'm not saying that you're going to be judged for your sins at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a Christian, those things have already been judged in Jesus at the cross. 
You're not judged for sin, but the eternal state of happiness and bliss ties in with what you do in the body. And so your motivation for separating yourself from bad habits and from sinful people is that this body, this body in which you do all these things is going up in the resurrection. So the resurrection is motive for separation. Watch out for your associations. Evil, evil associations, evil conversation, evil communications, corrupt good manners. So be separate in your associations. Now finally then, number two, is separation in our dedication. He says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There is a world out there that does not have knowledge of God. If you're not living a separated life, then how are the people of the world going to tell a difference in you How are they going to tell that you have a hope of eternal life residing in you? You know, I firmly do believe that Christians do more harm to the cause of Christ many times than lost people do. If you look at America today, do you think that we would have have had a Mormon running for president? And do you think that we would have somebody who believes in murdering unborn babies? And believes that even a baby that's partially born should be killed. And even a baby that in the aborted process came out of the womb and is living should be killed or is allowed to be killed. Do you think that we would have people like that running for president if Christians in America stood up for what they believe? If we stood up for what the Bible says? You know, these people that that talk about these things, they also have Christian attached to their names. They call themselves Christians. But there's a world out there that doesn't know Christ, and Christians are a big part of the problem. Now, that's one thing, but Paul's main point here is not that the world doesn't know about Christ and that we ought to win the world. Certainly, we ought to do that, but that's not the main point. The main point of this argument is what concerns what goes on in Corinth, that those in the church, there were some of them that were teaching there is no resurrection from the dead. And from those, he says, separate yourselves from those people. Don't continue with them. Don't join up with them. And so what does that mean for us as members of Berean Baptist Church? Are we going to join up with people just because they have the word Christian out there on the sign? Folks, if the Christ that's preached on the inside of the church does not match or the, the Christ on the outside of the church, if those things aren't equal, then we're not going to fellowship with those people. We're going to separate from them. We're dedicated to this one thing. That is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not going to give that up. We will earnestly contend for the faith. All of those people that died as martyrs all throughout the centuries, they would not compromise their doctrine. They could have. They could have said, well, let's focus on those things that unite us. Let's focus on the things of the devil that will unite us rather than the things of the true things of Jesus Christ that causes us to separate because they're not preaching the truth of the gospel. We're not going to join up with that. These people could have done that, but they didn't do it because they had a hope of the resurrection. They knew that they were going to live this life and they were going to live, uh, leave the life and they were going to leave this life faithful and true Because they knew that everything they do in this life relates to that new life in Christ. And they're going to be with Christ forever. They knew how to live in light of the resurrection. Now I want to ask you today, how are you living in light of the resurrection? I want you to put this last on your listening sheet as we close today. Just ask yourself the question, 
Have I sacrificed anything for Christ? Have you sacrificed anything at all for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Millions of martyrs died for this. Have you sacrificed anything? I mean, are you dedicated to the cause of Christ? Did you think about Christ this week? Did you read your Bible this week? Did you pray this week? Are you really dedicated? How are you living in light of the resurrection? So if you're a Christian today, you need to ask yourself, how am I living in light of the resurrection? But I don't want to stop there because I want to talk to those of you who may be here today and you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior. What are you going to do in light of the resurrection? You know, the resurrection makes a statement. It says that Jesus is alive. We've just talked about Christians who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, lost people, those who don't believe in Christ, are going to be judged too. The only thing is, you're not going to stand at the very same judgment as Christians stand before. You'll be before what we call the great white throne judgment. And the Bible says that the books will be open and you'll be judged by everything that you've done in your life, every thought, every action, every minute minute detail of life, you'll be judged for. Now, people will say, well, I'm not such a bad person. When I get up there and stand before God, I'll make my case. And I'll show God I'm really not so bad after all. Well, you've got a problem. And that is, this judgment is not to determine whether you get in or you don't get in. It has nothing to do with that. When you stand before this judgment, pardon my French, you ain't going in. It's already too late at this judgment. And so that is a guarantee when you stand before that judgment seat of Christ. If you live, leave this life without trusting Jesus as your personal Savior, you have a guarantee that when you stand in judgment, it will infallibly result in you going to the fires of hell. That's what happens at that judgment. Now, when you understand that, what are you going to do in light of the resurrection? There's a burning fire out there. And I want to tell you what you need to do. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You need to understand that there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you ever will do that will save your soul or your body. There's nothing that you can do. It all centers on what Jesus Christ himself did for you at the cross of Calvary. You must believe in him. Now, I've told you before, Berean preaches from the Bible... And the literal truth of the Bible is there is a real heaven that waits for the redeemed and there is a real hell that waits for those that are rejected of God. What are you going to do in light of the resurrection? I hope that you trust Jesus today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that we're able to talk about from your word. Lord, I pray that Christians here today would understand how we need to live in light of the resurrection Changes need to be made in our lives. We need to live for you and be a testimony for you. May the light of the gospel shine to others who don't know you. Then, Lord, I pray for those who may be here today. They haven't yet trusted you as Savior. As we've just stated, there is a real hell that waits for all those who are rejected of God. And all those that are rejected are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Lord, speak to some heart today. I just pray that you might open their eyes to the gospel of Christ. Save someone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.